chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And if there's any children here, kindergarten to second grade, who'd like to head off to Children's Church, you're welcome to do that. Children's Church to the door over here by the piano. There'll be some people back there to receive you. Hebrews chapter 12. And we are studying verses 18 to 29, the end of chapter 12 today. Hebrews 18 to 29. I think in many ways, it just this has to be one of the most exalted passages, literarily speaking, in Hebrews. Maybe, you know, in the New Testament. It's just one of those uh, passages that's so powerful, so well composed. Um, so let me read it and then, and then I'll... Uh, preach and talk about this text together with you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from Him who warns us from heaven? At that time, His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. There are many issues facing our world today that have an urgency about them and that demand our urgent attention. There there are many issues that just cry out for us to pay attention and to focus. Uh, You know, we see them on the news. They're kind of shoved in our faces. You know, there's countries around the world today, for instance, that are seeking and developing nuclear weapons. Countries that should not have these kinds of weapons. And, and this is a big issue that focuses our attention and, and makes us pay attention when they talk about it in the news. We're told by some that uh, human behavior is destroying our planet's climate and that it could have disastrous consequences down the road. And that's, that's a debate that's going on that demands our attention. 
Uh, our, uh, the world can just kind of slog through uh, uh, this recession that seems to just kind of be everywhere, even in our own country. And so we're focused on that. We watch every uptick or downtick of the stock market. You know, we look every month, did the unemployment numbers go up a percentage point, up 0.1, and we, we read so much into it. We're focused on the economy, what's happening around us. Uh, we're focused on this great, right now in our own nation, healthcare debate about, uh, you know, what do we do about healthcare? And, and these, there's these town meetings that are erupting into these shouting matches. And, you know, and we're focused on that. We watch the news and we read the blogs. And these are the things that demand our attention. And, and they're important things. But as we come to Hebrews 12 this morning, I, I want us to focus on the issue, the topic that is so urgent so pressing, so important, not only to our personal lives, but to the world, that it makes all of those world issues, as important as they are, by comparison, seem kind of irrelevant, relatively speaking. The most urgent need and issue that we face today is our need to hear and to heed the voice of God. There is nothing more important for us than to hear God's Word and to do what it says. You know, a lot of us have needs in our personal lives. Um, You know, I know as a pastor things you're going through. I'm I'm going on this trip. I don't know exactly where I'm going, and so I'm kind of tense about that. And You know, some of us are struggling with work. We have family relationships. All kinds of things are happening in our lives. And yet, nothing is happening in our lives that's as important as our need to hear and to heed. God's Word. And so here we are at the end of Hebrews chapter 12. We're almost being done with Hebrews. And here at the end, the writer of Hebrews, having delivered this whole sermon, this whole missive, he, he wants us to just remember what's at stake here and why it's so important. So Hebrews chapter 12 is the story of the two mountains. You know, you've heard the tale of two cities. This is the tale of two mountains. And he wants us, really, what he's trying to do is get us to step back and get some perspective on life. Get some perspective on eternity, on the things that matter. The people to whom he was writing had lost perspective. You know, we've been studying this over the weeks and months. They, they lost track of what was important. These were Christians who were drifting away. They, they were getting caught up in their own sufferings, their own struggles, their own temptations. Some of them were struggling so much that they were kind of wandering away from the faith like people who are dazed and confused in the midst of their own pain and, and doubt and they're sort of wandering away. He's trying to call them back to the faith. And so what he wants to do is he wants to give us some perspective on how important it is that we hear and heed our Creator when He speaks to us through His Word. And so he tells this, this amazing passage, I, I, just, I think it's amazing, we'll, we'll go through it in a minute, of these two mountains. And basically, here's the flow of the passage. There's three nice chunks to it. Verses 18 to 21 is the first mountain that we have not come to. Verses 22 to 20. Four is the second mountain, the one we have come to. So we're going to have a compare and contrast between these two mountains. And then verses 25 to 29 is the application, the therefore, what do we do with this? And the thing we're supposed to do is we need to pay attention to God when He's speaking to us. So let's just take these three mountains in turn, uh, two mountains in the application. We'll start with verse 18 to 21. He says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it beg that no further word 
uh, be spoken to them. Now, the author of Hebrews here is like making a, an allusion back to the Old Testament, to an important event in the Old Testament. Maybe some of you can already guess what it is. What mountain is he talking about here? Mount Sinai, right? This is, he's, he's referring back to the story when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and they went in the desert and they came to the foot of Mount Sinai, sometimes called Mount Horeb. And it was on that mountain that Moses, you know the story, came down with the Ten Commandments from God. God visited the Israelites on the mountain. But one of the, one of the things we often forget is, you know, we think about, oh yeah, that's where Moses brought the Ten Commandments. But we forget this, this scene of terror and fire and smoke and earthquake that as you read the Old Testament, there's allusions all over the Old Testament back to God. I think our opening scripture we read this morning was about God who melts the mountains like wax. You know, there's this residual memory in Israel's sort of collective history of this event where God came down in this terrifying, burning theophany. And they remember this, the power of God and the terror of God's holy presence. Let's go back and read the original story, just so you can read it yourselves. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews. Go back to Exodus chapter 19. The second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, chapter 19. And we'll just quickly review this original story. It's quite, quite amazing. Exodus chapter 19. Let's start at verse 10. Here's the preparation. This isn't God coming down. This is just people getting ready for God coming down. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. They're camping at the foot of the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. So they're kind of getting ready for this event ceremonially. Because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits on the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. So here's where you get that reference in Hebrews 12 to an animal even being put to death. It's so serious that people not go up to this mountain because holy God is coming down on the mountain. And it finally happens. Look down at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. It was just a terrifying scene. To stand at the foot of this mountain, to have God descending in such power and fire that everything's shaking and there's thunder and lightning. And look how the people respond. So, okay, so you have chapter 19. God comes down. Chapter 20. The Ten Commandments. And look at the response to this whole scene. Chapter 20, verse 18, after the Ten Commandments are delivered, the Ten Words. Look at chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. 
God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. You know, what a terrifying image to stand at the base of this volcanic, cataclysmic appearance of God that, that literally shook the world and made people just want to fall down. They were so terrified. So that's what Hebrews 12, going back to Hebrews 12 now, is talking about. You see both of these things in Hebrews 12 in the story of Sinai. The, the theophany of God and fire, smoke, earthquake, trumpet. And the second thing you see is the fear of the people. So, so we saw that. So there's the, the fire and all that. Verse 19, the, a trumpet blast is such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. They were terrified because they could not bear what was commanded. And you get this quote here. Just It gives an example of how extreme it was. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. That holy God had descended on the mountain. And the sight was so terrifying that Moses, Moses the covenant mediator, even the covenant mediator was scared. That's how terrifying this was. I had had an interesting experience this week. I was driving back up from Providence. I went down to visit some pastors down there and uh, hung out with them during the day. I was coming back up 95 and you know there's some traffic ahead and finally as it got closer I figured out what was going on there was a car fire on the side of the road and I don't know if you've ever seen a car fire it's the second one I've seen in my life it, the car was over on the shoulder the guy was safely out of it he was down the road a ways and you know the hood of this car was just engulfed in flames coming out of the engine and the, you know that black greasy kind of smoke that comes fr- from sort of a mechanical fire like that I mean it was a really kind of eerie scene and, and what was really interesting was just watching everybody freaking out on the road. I mean, it's like people were, ah, you know, you saw cars suddenly swerving around. Some people were turning on their headlights. I don't know why. Some people were turning on their hazard lights. It's like they just have to turn on something, see people on their cell phones. Some people were just pulling over. You know, and they weren't getting out. They weren't watching. They were just, just like they had to pull over, like, ah, car fire. I don't know what they were doing. And, and everyone is pulling over to the side of the road. And this is the one that baffled me. As we got nearer and nearer to it, they're slowing down. I'm like, shouldn't we be uh, speeding up? What if it goes boom like in the movies? I don't know if cars really do that, but I've seen movies, so it must be real. Um, So I'm like, let's go, let's go, people. And and it was just so interesting to be driving by this car fire and see everybody on the road like, "Ah," you know, freaking out and getting past this thing. It's just amazing how, how we can come to such panic. It's such a terrible sight. And then I was thinking, you know, I'm thinking about this passage and I'm thinking... The other, the other image that came into my mind as I was sort of kind of entering into this story was, was just the terror that, that we felt watching the fire from the two towers, you know, eight years ago. We're coming up on the anniversary of that day. Just, you know, seeing the fire and the smoke. And I'm watching it on TV and it's like, you know, I want to turn on my hazards and pull over. It was terrifying. Maybe you talked to some people who were actually there in New York City on 9-11. I've talked to a couple and, and even, you know, ones who weren't right there but were just around and could see it from their buildings. And, and, you know, you talk to people who were actually there and they were just traumatized by this, seeing this event. I mean, it was horrible to, to imagine huge buildings, you know, burning and, and collapsing. I mean, what a terrifying image. And so now, you know, I, I'm just kind of emotionally entering into the story. I'm, at, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, you know, car fire, building fire, world on fire as God comes down in His power and His glory, and, and the, you know, the earth kind of buckles under His glorious presence. And, and 
the mountain burns. I mean, how does a mountain burn? I thought it was a rock. I didn't know rocks burned. And there's smoke and there's trumpet blast. This is, it's, it's this holy God coming down and the people are just melting in terror at His presence. And I think that not only were they terrified because it was terrifying to see that sight, but also because there was an awareness of the holiness of God in their midst. It wasn't just that it was like big scary fire run, but it was like big scary fire coming from the holy presence of God. You know, you see that theme all over in the Exodus story we read. Consecrate yourselves. Don't go near the mountain. The holy God is coming down. The people were, were afraid. And Moses is like, God is trying to teach you fear so you won't sin. So it's about their holiness and obedience to God. Here in this text, uh, you know, these words like gloom and darkness and fire, if you cross-reference these words around the New Testament, these are classic words associated with the judgment of God. So, so it wasn't just fear of fire. It wasn't just pyrophobia or something. It was that the holy God was coming in judgment. This is what happens when holy, holy, holy God dwells with unmediation with an unholy, sinful people like us. It is a terrifying thing. And and people were melting in fear. It reminds me of uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah has the vision of God. You know this story? He sees God on his throne. He has this prophetic vision. And there's God and and the burning seraphim are around him. And the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And even these angels, remember what they do? They cover their faces because they can't even look at God. And what does Isaiah, the great prophet, say? He says, Woe to me! I am ruined. I'm ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the, the, the King, the Lord Almighty. What really terrified Isaiah wasn't that he had a, a vision of the numinous God. It was that, that he was holy and he realized he was sinful. So this is such a terrifying picture of judgment. It, you know, Sinai is a, is a picture not only of covenant making, but also of judgment and, and God's holy anger against our sin. And it reminds us just how holy God is and how sinful we are and, and how powerless we are going to be someday before His judgment if we just go straight to Him in our sins. But here's the amazing news. You, verse 18, have not come to that mountain. I love verse 18. You have not come to this mountain. That mountain happened, but that's not our mountain. We haven't come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire. As the people of the new covenant in Christ, we have come to a different mountain. And it's there in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Three different titles to describe the same place. Not a lonely, desert, volcanic apocalypse, but a city. You know what's the great thing about a city? You can live in a city. You can go into the city. You can't go up in a volcano. You run from a volcano, you go into a city. 
It's a place that was meant for us to live. It's a home. It's the city of of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the true Mount Zion. Not the place in the Middle East today. That's not the focus. It's the heavenly Jerusalem that we're waiting for. That was just a prefigurement of that. The land of Palestine in the Middle East today, it was just a prefigurement of, of the heavenly home that we're waiting for. So there's this looking forward. In fact, we've already seen this city in Hebrews. Do you guys remember? We've seen it different times. Look back at Hebrews chapter 11. This isn't the first time that we've heard rumors of this city. Hebrews chapter 11, go back to verse 9. I know you thought we were done with Hebrews 11. We've fallen back into it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Here we go. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So even when he was in the promised land and God was making a promise, you shall have this land, even then he wasn't really ultimately hoping that the land of Palestine would be his land. Even in the land, with the promise of the land, he was looking beyond the land to that which it pointed to, which is this city that God was going to build. You see it again down in verse 16. Instead they, that is the the people of God down through the centuries, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has a city, prepared a city for them. God's building a city. It's not a city we're going to build. It's not an earthly city. This is a God city that God is going to deliver like a present. Or look, uh, look at chapter 13 of Hebrews. Just one more. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city. Our home isn't in this world. There's no place here that's our true home as Christians. We don't have an enduring city. But we are looking for the city that is to come. That is our city. So you have this funny expression going back to Hebrews 12:22. We have come to the city that hasn't yet come. Isn't that kind of funny? We've come to this mountain, but we haven't actually come to it yet because it hasn't come. I think that's what it means back in verse 18 when it says, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched. We can't touch our mountain yet, not because it's spiritual or invisible, just because it hasn't come yet. We're still waiting for our mountain to come. And yet, somehow, by faith in Christ, we have come to it. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the the, the evidence of things not seen. It's through faith that we have laid hold of that which we have not yet been able to lay hold of physically with our hands. Do you get that? So by faith in Christ... We've, we've come to the mountain. It kind of reminds me of in Ephesians where Paul says, you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Like I have, I thought I was still here on earth. But in some spiritual sense, I'm already seated with Christ in glory. And so there's some sense in which I'm already at this mountain as a Christian by faith, and yet I'm still waiting for this, this thing to come from God and be delivered. It's the great city of God that Augustine wrote about as we live here among the city of man. Waiting for the city of God to come down. But wait, there's more. Listen, he takes us now into the city. So not only do we get to see it from a distance, we're going to get like one of those virtual tours. You get to see the place before you've been there. You, you, know, you go on a virtual tour on a computer and you look around in the new house. This is the same thing. We get a virtual tour of Mount Zion before we get there. 
I love it. He says, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. This city is packed with angels. The servants of God who are worshiping Him. And I love it. They're in joyful assembly. That Greek word is, um, it means a festal assembly. In other words, it's a kind of assembly you have at a religious festival where everyone gets dressed up and they have a big celebration. You know, we have religious festivals. Even Baptists have religious festivals. We do Christmas. We do Easter, right? I love Easter. You all come dressed up. All the little girls are in these dresses with huge bows and the women wear hats. I actually wear a tie. I mean, it's, it's such an event. Uh, and, and we all dress up, and there's, there's, there's flowers all over the stage here. It's a festal assembly. And the angels are there in this Zion at the festal assembly. Kind of makes me wonder, wonder what it looks like when angels dress up. But look, look who else is at this assembly. Verse 23 There's also the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. The the church is there. The Christians, the believers. Actually, that word um, uh, church really, I I think you're probably better translated the assembly or the congregation of the firstborn. There's an assembling together. All the Christians are there. You know, all the people from Hebrews 11 that we read about, they're there. And and the Christians who were there in Hebrews, they're there and we're going to be there. And there's some Macedonian Christians I'm going about to meet in a couple days. They're going to be there. You know, in, in the future Mount Zion, there's not a need for separate local churches. They're just one church. A city big enough for us all, with all of God's angels, all there together. The church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, the elect, are there in heaven together. It's got, you know, I have this other image in my mind. Times Square, New Year's Eve. Right, without all the bad stuff, but... The people, the people, crowded together, crazy hats, in a joyous celebration, all waiting for that ball to drop. Except we're there, we're not waiting for a ball to drop, some random time to change. We're waiting for Christ to come forward and to launch the bridegroom celebration, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And there's the people waiting in this joyful assembly. That's our home that's the mountain we've, we've come to that has not yet come. But wait, look at this. Look at the next line. Really interesting. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So God is there in the city. <clears throat> He's still the judge. He hasn't changed from Exodus. It's not like God was mean in the Old Testament and now He's nice in the New Testament. He's still the holy judge. But now instead of people running in terror, you have Him living in harmony with righteous men made perfect. Isn't that interesting? Like, who are these people? Who's righteous? I thought we were all sinners. Yet somehow, there in the new Zion, God and men live together. It's not like God on the mountain and people are going, ah, run! It's people living with God in a joyful assembly. And it raises the question, how can this be? I mean, it's sort of an interesting picture. But you just wonder, like, how did, how did we go from Mount Sinai with terror and fire to the joy and the celebration of Mount Zion? How is it that the same God in both places, one place His holiness terrifies man, and the other place He lives with righteous men? And there's unity and peace and, and the big party that goes on forever and ever and gets better and better forever and ever as we celebrate Christ forever. 
What's the difference? How do we get from one to the other? Are we just more spiritual than the Old Testament people? Are we more righteous and they were more sinful than we are? No. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what is it? It's right there in verse 24. What else have we come to? To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is the key to the entire mountain switch. That is what makes the new mountain possible. Is because we have a mediator, not Moses who's shrinking in fear, who himself is disobedient, but Jesus the mediator who shed his own blood so that we could enter into this mountain. I mean, this is like a major, major drumbeat in Hebrews, isn't it? How many times have we seen this? Jesus has shed his blood so we could come near to God. Not run away, but draw near. Look back, for instance, at chapter 10. Keep your finger here, but chapter 10. For instance, we've seen, this is all throughout Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, to enter into, to go in, to enter the most holy place, not to run away, but to go near. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. We can go near Him with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts, there it is, sprinkled. There's the sprinkling of His blood. And so we're drawing near to God now in Hebrews through the sprinkled blood of Jesus. The reason we are righteous, going back to verse 23 of Hebrews 12, the reason we're righteous is not because we're better than others, it's because the blood of Jesus has sprinkled us and forgiven us. The reason we can go up to Mount Zion is because Jesus went up to Mount Calvary. And because Jesus went up Mount Calvary, where He hung on a cross, where the sky turned, what? Black. Where the earth shook. Where there was crying and lamentation. The reason we can go to Mount Zion is because Jesus, the Son, the centerpiece of Mount Zion, came down to absorb our Mount Sinai. That on Calvary, Jesus was absorbing the anger of God, the righteous anger of the judge against our sins. Jesus took our punishment so we could be free. And so there's just an open invitation now to come to Christ. Come to Mount Zion through the blood of Jesus. You can't get there through your own self-righteousness. We cannot get there through our own religiosity or self-confidence. We have to simply come to Jesus and be forgiven and have hope it is through His blood, through the mediator, Jesus. See that word? That word mediator is key. He's the mediator of this new covenant who brings us to Mount Zion. And that is why, verse 25, moving on to the third section, it is so critical that we pay attention to the Word of God because this is what's at stake. These two mountains, fleeing Mount Sinai, and coming to Mount Zion. This is our eternal destiny. This is the future of the world is heading to one of these two places, so to speak. And so it is so important that when God speaks to us, we listen. It's far more important than anything else. And that's what He says, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. 
If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is, back at Sinai, how much less will we if we turn away who warns us from heaven? We have such a greater word, a greater salvation has been offered, a greater revelation of God that dwarfs anything in the Old Testament. And so if we, don't, if we disobey that or ignore God's word there or shake off his salvation there, I mean, you think we're going to escape there? They didn't escape back then. How are we going to escape now? He goes on, verse 26, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of that which can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Just as God shook the earth back then at Sinai, when this new city comes down, it's going to shake the creation. When this new heavens and earth and this new Jerusalem comes from God, this world will not be able to hold it, just like old wineskins can't hold new wine. This world's going to burst as the new is birthed from within the old and as the new heavens and the earth come. And so I can't be holding on to the things of this world. This world's passing away. That was one of the things that as I was studying this passage for myself, one of the things I feel like God was just tell, telling me again was I just kept coming to verse after verse about this world is passing away. Don't hang on to this world. We've got to live here. We've got to be in it. But I, I can't make this world my home. I can't cling to this world as if this is what it is. It's going to be shaken when the new Jerusalem and the new world comes. So I need to hold everything lightly because of what God is doing. So don't refuse Him. Don't turn away. Don't tune out. Don't drown. Don't put your fingers in your ears. Don't think, yeah, yeah, God may be speaking, but I really want this. It's not worth it. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. Instead, what should we do? Verse 28. I'll just close with this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Boy, I could do a whole sermon just on that phrase. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's awesome. Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. First thing is we need to be a thankful people. In light of what's coming, we should have thankfulness and joy in our hearts even in the worst moments of our lives. Even when we're going through the worst of the worst as Christians, there's hopefully an awareness somewhere really down deep that, you know, ultimately though, this is just kind of temporary and I'm thankful because I know what's coming. So there's like a a deep-seated joy that's way down at the bottom, even below all this other stuff that comes up and down in my life. You know, the tide of this life that washes in sometimes with joy, sometimes washes out with pain, yet underneath it the rocks of thanksgiving and hope are there, and the sea cannot wash those away. And that's the foundation, God's Word that He's spoken that is our thankfulness and our joy. And then the other thing is we need to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Let me ask you, what does it mean to worship God with reverence and awe? Does it mean lighting candles in a church service? Does that mean that we're reverent and awe? Is it reverent and awe where when we wear ties or don't wear ties, when we play an organ or don't play an organ or play guitar? What is it that makes worship reverent and full of awe? Based on this text, I would say, Worshiping God with reverence and awe means hearing and obeying. That's the kind of worship God wants. The kind of worship 
that starts when we walk out of the sanctuary. The kind of worship that hears and heeds His Word. Because our God is a consuming fire.